Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. My name is David Breer and in today's very special episode, we're going to be talking all about the Truly Digital Manifesto. This is a very exciting resource that we've been laying out uh, as part of everything that we've been doing for 11FS recently. It really sort of lays out the vision of the present and really where we see the future of financial services really getting to. But before we start, we want to tell you about some of the other things that we've been working on here at 11FS and get a quick word from our sponsors. The evolution of financial services has opened up a whole new world of possibilities for banks. But to harness those opportunities, they need to break free from traditional constraints. Our new report, in association with Infosys Finical, explores how banks can overcome these challenges to see the full benefits of a truly digital world. Find the report at bit.ly forward slash banking business models. Temnos is a world leader in banking software helping over 3,000 banks deliver outstanding banking experiences to more than 1.2 billion people. Scale 2021 is Temenos' dedicated, free-to-attend, virtual developer event. It includes customer presentations, product demos, roadmap sessions, as well as opportunities for you to speak with Temenos experts. You'll also hear insights from industry leaders on current technology trends and how they impact banking today. Whether you're a developer, consultant, or business user, Discover the latest in banking technology with Temenos Software. Search Temenos Scale 2021 to find out more. All right, let's get started. As always, I am not alone. I'm joined by Jason Bates, Deputy CEO at 11FS and the lead author of the Truly Digital Manifesto. How are you doing, Jason? I'm good. How are you? It feels weird to be like back in a, a room doing these things again, doesn't it? It's quite it's quite nice though, isn't it? I have to it say. is. It is good. It's good to be back. Busy, busy week. Uh, yes, lots of uh, client stuff, research stuff, and on the next report to uh, to start working on. Indeed. All right. Well, uh, foreshadowing, foreshadowing. We might get to that a little bit later on when uh, when we go through this one. But uh, if we get started, I mean, this was all about truly digital. This report that we put out. Tell us a little bit more about that. What does truly digital really mean? Well, I guess. You and I have been both been working in this area, looking at this kind of space for for a long time, you know, eight, nine years. And I think we've been continually asking the question, like, what's going on? How, how can you describe this? How can you talk about this with clients? What are the changes that are underlying all of this uh, disruption in the market? And I think early on, we realized that while clients were talking about digital, they didn't really mean digital. They meant they were digitizing what came before. So they used to have a form, and now they put the form on a mobile phone. They've digitized it. Um, they used to you used to go to a bank teller to ask for your balance, and now you can do that on a mobile phone. They've just digitized it. And so digitizing is about taking what happened before, the same business models, the same approaches, the same services, and just putting them on a screen rather than on the end of a phone line or on a uh, in a bank branch. So so then that begs the question, okay, so if everyone's digitizing what came before, like well, what's digital? Like what does that really lead to? Mm. It's interesting that, isn't it? And you, you sort of look at those, uh, you know, similes to other industry. It's like, you know, Elon Musk deciding to create a robot to drive a car and sitting at the same vantage point rather than creating a, a self-driving car. That just wouldn't make any sense, would it? And, and actually, I mean, we've seen, I guess, 
fintechs come in and use, you know, much more sort of first principle thinking, haven't we, to to rather than just take what's been done before and, you know, evolve it a little bit or put it on a smaller screen, but just think about that in a really different way. Yeah, I guess there's, there's two ways of looking at this. The uh the fintechers and the the legacy bankers, let's say. And you can sit there and say, well, look, mobile phones are just better ways of doing forms. They do give you your balance. And I don't have to ask a bank teller or phone up a, you know, a, a bank, a virtual bank teller. And so they're a channel. Like, actually, we've got other channels. We know how those work. Fintech is not going to change our business model. It's not going to change current accounts that have been around for hundreds of years. Uh, let's get real here. Like, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. And then the other version is saying, actually, look, technology is fundamentally changing the, the operating model, the business model. It actually has characteristics and virtues that just going to a bank teller or phoning up a bank just don't have. And so actually, it's going to lead to some fundamental changes. And so different people have different views on that. But actually, even even getting people to start thinking about that conversation is worth it. It is. It's uh, always getting people to understand that change is coming, which seems to be the the hardest thing to, to sort of get people to because they, they like things in their their existing frame of references. You know, I can put this here and do this here and, oh, you're one of those and you do this. So, like, that is how people – it's a coping mechanism to a certain degree. Yeah, and we've seen it in other industries. So, you know, the first time I remember seeing a, a copy of The Times on an iPad, it actually had a page curl. You know, the uh, Murdoch organization must have loved the fact that they can now not cut down trees, not print, not uh, send their their newspapers to news agents, but actually deliver it directly to end consumers – but it's the same thing. It's the same editorial staff. It's the same subscription model. It's the same advertisers. Exactly the same, just digitized onto an iPad. But of course, the newspaper industry is being sort of cratered by the fact that people are not wanting that 24-hour news cycle with a limited number of column inches. Suddenly, we've got news targeted us and our uh, preferences. We're getting news from other places. We're getting video and real-time feeds. The model's changed. Same for music. You know, it's great that iTunes sells albums, and I'm sure BMG and Sony, you know, uh, uh, love the fact that there's A&R staff and putting together albums and artwork for it and packaging that music up and then selling it on a digital channel means the, the cost of that supply chain disappears, but they can still sell the, the album for the same amount, even though they're not printing the disc anymore. But now Spotify is not doing that. It actually, you know, it's, it's about the access to music and that as a service, helping you discover what new artists you'd like to listen to and not by albums, but by the individual tracks because there's always that track, you know, three or four tracks in the album you didn't really want to hear anyway. So that, that change between digitizing what came before in different industries and then actually finding out what this new technology can deliver and how that differs and what the operating model and business business model is. Um, we've seen it in other industries. And so the question is, well, what effects does that have on banking? Mm. So why now? Like why, you know, the, the, the manifesto for change? Why is it a good time to sort of put this out today, do you think? Because, I mean, obviously, the the evolution has been long in terms of financial services. But but is this is this sort of coming to a head now? Well, I think we're seeing a 
um, a change in the fundamental structure of the industry. We're seeing new players come along. And actually, uh, both through market forces, through new technologies and through regulatory forces, we're seeing what were traditional monolithic providers start to split into different layers, into different platforms. So we've got the rails on the bottom. You know, we've got the space where, um, you know, MasterCard, Visa, the card networks, faster payments, ACH, um, and, and that used to be a, you know, an old boys club. You had to have a bank in order to be connected directly to these rails. And now we're seeing both the democratization of payment rails. So, you know, in the UK, the regulators are pushing for direct access to faster payments to be made available to other players. And we're seeing crypto come along, which is an entirely new unregulated, you know, set of rails. So we've got a, we've got this space on the bottom, which used to be welded to that product layer to, uh, to banks, and now it's not. We've got the product layer. But uh, that always used to come up with a with some basic channels. So it's it's where net interest margin and fees and charges and deposits and loans all sit within that layer. And um, and now instead of just the the dumbest channels uh, that provide access to those products, we're seeing services layered over the top. So these real time intelligent contextual, you know, services that do things for you rather than just tell me my balance and let me move money. And with open banking and open finance, that's driving a wedge there. So from a traditional old world of you know one bank one product. Don't, you know, don't worry about what's going on behind the curtain. We're now getting to a point where the, we're starting to see splits with crypto powering new product providers that then provide products to new intelligent services platforms. We're seeing Goldman Sachs behind Apple. We're seeing Klarna at the kind of the higher layers starting to offer things that, that banks would have traditionally offered in a very different way. So I think what we're seeing is the, the play out of this, just as we have with other industries. We're starting to see that these platform layers are starting to spread out and provide new marketplaces and, and new battlegrounds for new providers. Mm, it feels like it's um, sort of the change is now inevitable, doesn't it, to a certain degree? I feel like that was a Thanos thing out of the Avengers then. But uh, but the, the idea that, I mean, I remember talking to you back in 2016 with actually the changes that were coming into the market. You know, we were seeing new regulation, you know, seven-day switching. We're seeing, mm. uh, you know, uh, capital liquidity uh, requirements sort of changing mm. to make it a bit easier. All of that has bred the momentum that we're seeing sort of today. And and the the effect that that has on, you know, back to your point around those those two sides of this argument, the, the people who really sort of think there's all of it to come ahead and the people who think it's already done, now it's inevitable that it impacts both sides of that fence, right? So I guess, you know, the, the, the last question really is like, who is this for? Is this manifesto for, you know, big banks or is it for fintechs or is it just for the, the industry as a whole in terms of really this being a, this inevitable change now? That's that's coming forward. I, I think if you if you look into the market now, whether you're working in a fintech or in a big bank, it's very easy to get uh, to struggle to see the the order. What, what is the the conceptual market structure that actually we're playing in? Who are really our competitors, and who are people we can work with? And you know, is Klarna and Stripe and Goldman Sachs and Barclays and Revolut are they all competing against each other, or are they competing at different layers? So in some ways, we've tried to stand back and say, well, look, the first thing to understand is we're moving from products to intelligent services, and that's a change in, in what you're delivering and how that works. And then secondly, 
services are really about these these new characteristics and virtues of digital, which we lay out in the um, in the manifesto. And then thirdly, that structure that's being sort of separated out by market regulatory forces, new technologies, really provides a way of working out where you sit and and what the, how your strategy plays out in that world. All right. Well, we're going to unpack a little bit more of that as we go, but um, we'll come back to it after the break. There is a better way to hire internationally, and it starts with deal. Everything from contract creation, record keeping, payments, and full-time employment is all in one place for teams all over the world. Companies anywhere can hire compliantly everywhere thanks to Deal. It's payroll and compliance built for today's worldwide workforce. To learn more, visit letsdeal forward slash 11FS. That's letsdeal, D-E-E-L, dot com forward slash 11fs and redeem an exclusive offer of three months free when you hire a contractor and 20% for your first year when you hire an employee. Customers expect more from their digital experience and their personal finance is no exception. BlueShift empowers fintechs and financial institutions to create secure customer profiles and intentional relevant experiences for customers. Whether in-app, on-site, in-branch or anywhere else, BlueShift's Smart Hub CDP helps brands like LendingTree and ClearScore turn data into personalised experiences that increase retention, satisfaction and revenue. Learn more about BlueShift at blueshift.com forward slash 11FS. Hey folks, uh, welcome back to this very special edition of Fintech Insider, looking at our own truly digital manifesto with Jason Bates. That feels weird. To, um, you're mm. not you're not quite a guest on this. It feels like we're both a guest, given <laughs> we've not been in the studio for such a long period of time. Um, maybe, Jason, if we sort of delve in a little bit deeper, one of the things that we cover quite a lot, and actually, I mean, me and you have talked about this roughly 10 million times in the last four years, digital riches. Mm. Um, talk us a little bit about that, because actually it's a real sort of cornerstone that we use, I know our teams use day in, day out, in terms of how we think about products, but also think about what truly digital is. Um, so bring that to life. Well, I guess it uh, it builds on that that differentiation, uh, that nuance between digitizing and making things digital. And then obviously the next question is, well, that's great. As a bank or as an insurance company, we've been digitizing everything. But what is digital really about? And if you take Spotify and Facebook and every uh, sort of next generation truly digital company and you say, well, what is it that they share that's different from what came before within those industries? Then you come out with some with some characteristics and virtues. And so it just so happens it makes a nice mnemonic for us, riches. R stands for real time. It's not about the uh, daily balance or the uh, monthly statement or the annual charge. It's it's about real time because we can use ubiquitous telecommunications networks and data centers to deliver that. It's about I for intelligence. So this isn't about a... I don't know, a direct debit, a standing order on this date, move this money to this account. Is that really the best we can do? No, it's about event-driven uh, algorithms that actually deliver valuable services to end customers. What is it they're trying to achieve? What data comes in? What events happen? And then how can we use those in order to make something happen for end customers? And then that feeds onto the C, context. Um, so it's... It, uh, I may want to to look at different things at different times of the month, different times of the year. Uh, payday happens. Okay, there's a specific context there that makes it important. Um, H is for human. And that's really about the fact that digitized banking is the coldest thing in the world. It's 
basically banking without people. It's just the numbers. But actually, with the right tone of voice, with empathetic product design, it can feel like a human. It can feel caring. It can feel uh, empathetic. So there's something about both tone of voice and product design in there that, that's important. Um, e, extendable or ecosystem, depending on what mood you're in. There's actually, it is now, especially through APIs, about connecting all of these services together to deliver something of even more value to end customers, to those extended journeys and how that happens. Um, and C, it's about, it's, it's social or services. It, it's, it's something about the fact that we live in groups, we work in groups, I have a family, I have an extended family, and our financial uh, products and services all intermingle. I've got pocket money to pay out to my son, where at the same time, there's a joint account for things I, you know, bills I pay with my wife. Like, how does that all work? Traditionally, banking has not delivered that. Mm. And you see that whether you look at Facebook or Spotify or whatever, those elements of, of modern technology, those real-time intelligent contextual services designed in a human empathetic way and extending into into other spaces uh, really are the sort of underlying features of of the, this new way of looking at things. Yeah, it creates a, a very interesting sort of yardstick, doesn't it? Actually, if you're you're building a, a product in today's day and age, how many of these things are you really thinking about? And actually, if you're not, then actually where do you even get the data from in order to leverage thinking about these things in the right way, you know, whether it's in the intelligence or whether it's the, the real-time access to things. I mean, obviously, these things sort of coexist within riches. You know, the, all of them are... Uh, are important, but are there any particular that sort of stands out to you as as like critical? It's like, hey, if you're going to build a digital product, it's got to be it's got to be that I or it's got to be that C or whatever. Um, because I, I guess people sort of stand back and go, this is a lot. Like, you know, everybody wants the you know the sixty second abs version. Like, is there any that stands out to you? I guess it's it is intelligence because actually modern technology and algorithms are best at doing intelligent things. You know, we, are, we often talk to clients and they say, well, this is great, but, you know, is this, can you summarize this? Like, what's the one sentence version? Where is this heading? And, you know, and I think it's private banking for the mass market, whatever that mass market is, whether it's global transaction banking, SME customers or, or individuals, because ultimately the services that the, you know, high-end ultra net worth individuals get from their, their their staff of people looking after them day to day provide real-time intelligent contextual services. But, you know, you and I and people who stack shelves at Tesco's do not have access to that. So we have to manage our own stuff. Now, if we can if we can essentially create algorithms that and uh, technology that that looks and behaves intelligently to help you manage your finances better, then I think that's the direction that, that this all goes. Yeah. And, and to your point on that, I mean, actually, if we uh, democratization is usually just making everybody have access to something. But actually, it's it's not that. Uh, you know, democratization of, of a wealth manager would be would be the digitization of it. You know, it's it's actually, it's not about replicating what they do. It's about doing it better than that, isn't it? Yes. Because as you say, with, with the intelligence that actually can be brought about, well, actually, you know, complex data sets across, you know, 10,000 different customers should be, uh, easy to interpret and, and examine now to give you advice on the uh, in in a real time sense around actually fundamentally how to be better off, isn't it? And and I think that's where so much of this sort of comes to. And the you know what you've talked about the 
you know, the, those third column businesses when you get to truly digital. But that business model fundamentally has to evolve, doesn't it? Well, parts of it do. Because ultimately, we're talking about, you know, the rails are still there for most of us, you know, we're paid by backs and chaps and everything else. And then we've got the products on the top. And I'm going to deposit money somewhere, I want it to be kept safe. And I also will need to borrow for various things, buying a new house or, you know, or a new car or whatever. So the products are still there, they're just wrapped in these new services. Now, the, at the product layer, you're still going to make money in the way that product layers make money, you know, that's been around for a long time. That's a great business model. But the services layer, well, digital services, whichever industry you look at, make money in different ways. Like for the majority of that world, which isn't a bank, um, then they don't make money with net interest margin and fees and charges. They make money through freemium, premium, subscriptions, ad supported, affiliate supported. You know, there are what, 10 different ways in which digital services companies make money. And then ultimately, even beyond that, into the sort of API-driven journeys sort of layer where Klarna and Stripe might embed these products and services into those big retailers. Actually, they're different business models as well. 27 different API business models as to how that might all work. So ultimately, which layer you're at determines the kind of business you're in and the kind of business and operating model you're in. And if you straddle those layers, then ultimately that means you've got a hybrid business case that actually you're looking to deliver something that might be freemium premium or affiliate uh, supported at the services layer while making potentially less interest margin and fees and charges at the products. And if you've got your own internal rails, then there's, there's stuff you can do there. So I don't think it's as simple as saying, well, look, I'm a bank, therefore I make money with net interest margin, like that is my business model and that's it. Actually, if you're going to be uh, designing these things, then that opens up new spaces. Mm. Yeah, it does. And it's where those areas of opportunity really sort of become in the market in terms of providing those types of services. But I mean, something that you touch on a lot, and I know, you know, with everything we've done at uh, 11FS and your time prior to this with, uh, with Monzo, getting to grips with customers understanding, you know, getting to grips. You talk about the the sort of brutal realities of day-to-day lives. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because, I mean, so many people presume they understand what customers actually need and, you know, get to the end and find out that's not quite the case. Well, if you, if you see the world through that legacy banking product lens, then you say, well, I've got a product, therefore, you know, customers need to access their money. They need to be sure the money's safe. They need to be able to transfer that money. They need to be able to identify themselves in KYC and AML. And you get a, a sense, essentially a whole set of jobs around managing this virtual vault in some way or another. But if we add this services piece on, and whether a bank does or an insurer does or someone else does through open banking, and, and as that evolves, then ultimately then the questions become, okay, it's not just me looking after your virtual vault and giving you access to the transactions, the ability to to move money, but actually it's about helping you in your life. Then the questions are different. The questions become like, explain to me the brutal realities of like how you manage your day-to-day finance or your longer-term view. How do you even think about it? What are the, the steps you take? And then from that perspective, you can say, well, now we can start building things to to do those jobs for people in a way that they conceptualize it rather than just give them better access to their bank account. Yeah, and that's that's so fundamental, isn't it? You know, actually, I know, I mean, we've done jobs, we've done frameworks in all over the world 
the weird spreadsheets or the mental maths that you find people sort of managing the gaps between the capability that they're being given and the the real things that they have to do. It's it's quite startling, isn't it, in terms of how people really manage their financial lives? Yeah, I mean, some people are just phenomenally good, fastidious about how they do it. They have spreadsheets and pivot tables and, you know, they sit sit at home watching the TV, working this stuff out. Some people are atrocious at it. And ultimately, we need to find that, that sort of middle ground or uh, or to deliver the the results that people who really care about it get to people who just don't want to put any effort in at all. Mm. Like, how do we help structure finances so that that it's just easy to manage? What's the minimum structure that that can be put in there? Um, and and pe- we're, we're seeing that in the market. So you know, we see people with Revolut or Starling or Monzo cards using it as a discretionary spending card in order to mentally separate out the money they can spend from their bills money. And a lot of people do that. So, you know, the the general public is giving us a uh, a view as to how they structure these things and what help they need um, through what they do day to day or what they do badly day to day. Yeah. And like I say, we've, uh, you know, I've seen it a bunch of times in the past, you know, people spend a lot of time, especially in big organizations, spend a hundred million pounds to get to the end of a project to find out that nobody cares about it. The closer you are to the customer problems, the more likely you're actually solving something people really matter. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've seen so many tech-driven innovation groups that basically see new technology coming along. Chatbots, oh, that's interesting. How can we apply chatbots to our banking you know, problem? Where technology is the foreground, They're, that's the thing that's changing. But actually, the, the groups that seem to do best are those that say, actually, technology is the background. That's the tool set behind me. Actually, in front of me is the, are, the, are our customers and what they're trying to do. And then I can reach into my toolbox in order to apply something to their lives. And so that, that customer-driven innovation group that actually is, is, the, is not about market insights or technology insights, but that really deep, deep ethnographic understanding of what your average customer looks like um, and how they manage their finances, how they think about them, what they have to do day to day, what the biggest problems are. Like that's actually the fertile ground for innovation. And then you can look at technology and say, well, how do we use this then in order to solve those problems rather than the other way around? Great. I mean, I think we could talk about that point on itself for another hour, but there were some really interesting comments that came through with uh, when we sort of put this out. Um, really, to, to talk a little bit about what the Truly Digital Manifesto kind of meant from an audience perspective. But the first one of those came from Ray Rogers on Twitter. He commented, uh, I see your riches and I raise you riches. Um, I'm not sure if that, I'm pretty sure that's not a Shane Ritchie comment on that one. It's not going to play particularly well for our international audiences. Um, uh, but the extra E being embedded. Mm. Um, what do you think? I mean, for me, the the first E being about being extended, for me, is really where I always sort of see yeah. embedded being put in. Because when you think about extending those journeys, extending the, that capability yeah. and, and distributing it into the places where it's really most most relevant, we use extended where you're using embedded, if that makes sense. So. Yeah, I, I agree. I think... You know, we've spoken about market forces and regulatory forces sort of splitting out the uh, um, the sort of value chain, and APIs uh, are revolutionary as a as a in a business operating model perspective. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, the fact that someone can embed through APIs someone else's products and services onto their website into their app. 
that's actually, you know, you're being an agent for them. And and that is through API extensions. We've spoken plenty of times to banks about um, uh, and done projects for them on uh, API commercialization, open banking commercialization. Quite often they start from the technology perspective. Well, APIs provide us data, banking data. Hmm, okay, we can aggregate different people's bank accounts and, you know, I can plug this into that. But actually the way we view the API world is that APIs enable end-to-end journeys uh, delivered by a variety of partners. Mm. And so that extendable bit, that embedded bit, is really about those end-to-end journeys delivered by APIs to make that happen. And it's just that next level of services. I can give you service at a certain level just looking at me and my bank, but you connect me with your broader financial picture and your credit cards and your investments, and I can do financial management at a whole different level. Yeah. So I think that's where it, where we get into the world of, uh, of extended uh, services rather than the the yeah. services themselves. I completely agree. Uh, good question though, Rave. Uh, another question came in. So Andy Benwali, friend of 11FS, uh, is social still relevant in the same way that it was? Almost a given now. Uh, that's in reference to the S in Richards, not just Andy having a go at LinkedIn and Twitter, I, I, I guess, at that stage. What, what do you think? I think it is because when you look at the brutal realities of people's lives, we live in families, you know, that ultimately there is the pocket money I'm allowed to spend and my wife and then the money for bills and then my son. And then at some point I might need to oversee my mum and dad's finances. There's our business finances. There are all kinds of overlapping pictures. Uh, there's money I need. I want to save towards a holiday that we're going to take later in the year. And, and the ability to sort of split out and see how, how that works with a group that I'm going on a ski trip with, my son, my wife, me, and my friends, um, we, li- we are social beings, yet traditionally financial services have been really hard in order to make, you know, work. You know, when a couple gets together and their finances slowly start to collide, you know, those awkward conversations of starting to open a joint account and what goes there versus your account and my, it's, it's horrific. My bank account or yours, eh? Um, it is interesting, isn't it? When people say sort of social in this context, they think, you know, we're going to share transaction, transactions on Twitter or something, which obviously it's not that. But, but I do agree with you. We are... We are social animals, aren't we? Therefore, working out financial services that works within uh, facilitating those relationships is is really really critical. And actually, both you, as you say, the the formation of them, but but actually the uh, degradation of those things as well. You know, like if you've given access to a friend to your current mm. account, like for whatever reason, or a joint account with a, a loved one in it you know, goes away. You need to be able to deal with that and, and, and manage that situation. And often those those times where these things happen are periods of real, you know, if somebody's died, you know, actually the intertwined, you know, finances of a, of, a, of, of that, not the most social activity I appreciate, um, but, but being able to deal with those types yeah. of situations in, uh, in, in, good, in a good way yeah. is really beyond where financial services is today. So um, some good questions there. I'm afraid we are going to have to wrap this up, though, because I know, again, we, uh, we could talk about this for hours and hours, but uh, we probably better wrap up the discussion at, at this point. Um, so for anybody who does want to download 
download the report, if you head over to trulydigital.11fs.com, you can download all of the capability that sits there, all of the documents that are there. And if you've got any further questions, feel free to, to, to actually reach out to us and uh, talk about it a little bit more. Um, what I would say, um, Jason, I mean, where can people learn out a little bit more about you? This is often the things that actually we're talking about in the office and you're uh, putting out posts on LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever on, but uh, where can people learn yeah, more I think from LinkedIn's probably the best place now. Um, so you can find me, Jason Bates, somewhere on there. Very good. Same for me. I'm a, I'm a LinkedIn lurker these days. It just does seem to be where most of the intelligent conversations are taking place, which is good. Um, thank you very much for listening, everybody. If you do like what you heard, then subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It super duper helps other people to find the show. Uh, our Truly Digital Manifesto is a living document, so we will be coming back to it and adding different things into it. There will be future episodes of the podcast and all other different types of things as we add more stuff in there as well. If you do have any questions, please do get in touch with us directly. Uh, to do that, you can find us on pretty much every social media channel at this stage. Just search for FinTech Insiders. Or if you really want to, email us on podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.